out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is David Eastall, The C86 Show. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of guitarist and drummer Chris Uttin, who sometimes goes by the name of Chris Crass. I know, make notes, I will test you at the end. Now, he's been in a lot of bands. In fact, he said 50. And I kind of believe him. So, he was in a band called The Veins, or Veins, that featured Duff McCagan, who went on to be part of Guns N' Roses, as well as The Muffs as well, who also became very successful, and The Rockinhams, and lots and lots of others. But anyway, I'm not going to bore you with lots of details, because he's going to tell you everything and much, much more, quite seriously. Stick to the end. And, um, yeah, this is it. So, look, after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years. Just a bit of a word. There is occasional break on the connection, so there's a little bit of... We freeze at times, but not through fear, through love. No, we didn't. But anyway, look, it does freeze occasionally, but don't worry, there's a few seconds here and there. I could go back and edit it, but I can't be bothered, so there you go. Anyway, it's a great interview. You'll love it. Chris, take it away. I was born into a musical family. My mother played classical piano, and my brother, um, he played guitar in bands in the 60s in high school. So he's going to be 69 this year, next month. And I'm 61, 60. So, um, so I was born in 61. And we, um, so I heard a lot of music around the house uh, growing up. The three Bs on both sides, Bach, Beethoven, and, and Brahms, Beatles, Beach Boys, and Birds. You oh, know? the Birds. I was trying to think of what the third B would be, actually. Yes. Yeah. So my brother, he was, his favorite band was the Birds. So I heard a lot of the birds growing up and um, just a lot of the stuff that was coming out in the sixties. And I played cello for a while. So I started to get into, you know, interested in classical music, but not for long, just a couple of years. I wanted to play rock and roll. Yes. So were your, I was just, were your parents quite sort of bohemian then, would you say? Well, they were, they were uh, sort of pseudo intellectual, middle-class, my mother was born in Dusseldorf, Germany, so she had a European background, but then they moved when she was very young because of World War II. Right. She moved to um, China with her, her mother and father. And so th- they were in China for a while, living pretty well with servants. And then the Japanese invaded during World War II, and my mom and her, her mother and her sister uh, they her mother divorced her father and moved to Victoria, British Columbia, and that is where my um, father, where my mother met my father. So he was Canadian. So really, I'm the first one in my family born in America. Blimey, that's one. My brother was born in Canada. I have to say, being being from England, everybody, you know, it, we're very geographically based, you know. I mean, there is this kind of thing that I think sometimes the gene pool is quite limited because people only married someone from the next village, whereas there was no chance of that with your family, was there? No, she, uh, I don't know, they, they, my dad was, he was ironic because I wear hearing aids now. <laughs> but my dad became an audiologist. And, uh, <laughs> you know, so I, 
I could have had my own personal audiologist to, to help me with my hearing. Although um, he divorced my mom when, when I was five. And uh, we, after we lived in Hawaii, actually, we lived in Hawaii for a year from 65 to 66. And then when we came back, they were divorced. My dad moved to Minnesota and became an audiologist. And then he, um, when I was nine, he killed himself. So, uh, Jesus Christ. so yeah, he was, he had depression that he didn't deal with. And I guess it was with him his whole life. And so, so that, that was, you know, for me, I was, uh, I was a pretty fired up kid. I was pissed off at the world. I used to get in a lot of trouble with, with school and with the law, but I was getting back to one of your, some of the early influences. I remember I had the single talk, talk by the music machine. Oh, rock song. The music machine. Talk. Yeah. Talk, 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 talk. Anyways, it's a, it's a sixties garage rock classic. And I had that when I was like, I don't know, seven years old or something. I remember playing that and just, just freaking out, loving it, just getting into it. And, you know, that might've been my, my pre-punk pre sort of influence because it was very punk-like. And I, I sang it, lip-synced it to my babysitter. Nice. <laughs> he probably got a bit scared, actually. But um, <laughs> probably thought, oh, so, so that was my 60s stuff. But now when you're saying, as I grew up and I started buying records at a very early age, so I have thousands of records. I've been buying records since I was probably eight, eight years old. Yeah. And so getting just a lot of rock. And then, um, but then we listen, I listened to the Carpenters too. And Joni Mitchell was a big influence. And uh, just a lot of that Crosby, Stills and Nash. And then, but then I was getting into the rock too. You say you were into glam. That was some of the earliest stuff for you. Yes. Well, I suppose also. And, and I got into it too, but I didn't really know it was all glam. Yes. But you see, it's froze. It did. It did slightly freeze. It's probably going to say my my line is slightly um, unstable. <laughs> That's life. But yes, I'm not sure if we're still frozen. No, you just come back. I'm not sure if you could hear that last bit. But are you moving now? Oh yeah. So it was kind of. I suppose in the '60s, though, just slightly before that. You know, being at home with my mum. Unstable. There, that's back. Is that better? Yeah. I haven't touched anything. But yeah, I suppose my mum, when I was, you know, before school, would be hanging about in the kitchen as, you know, in the 60s, uh, a working class mother used to spend a lot of time in the kitchen because we didn't have washing machines and tumble dryer. Well, they never had a tumble dryer. But they, you know, washing clothes was a major incident. You know, they had a twin tub. You know, it was a very big kind of experience, which would take all day. So I spent a lot of time with my mum in the kitchen. And she would play Radio 2. And I think there were certain influences of Radio 2 that have always stuck with me. And you mentioned The Carpenters, who was probably one of my first loves, to be honest. Because um, I still think that, you know, things like Rainy Days and Mondays, as well as um, I Say Goodbye to Love are still the most beautiful records ever written. And I, and I often think, well, if I like the Carpenters, obviously I was going to like Joy Division and the Smiths a bit later, because <laughs> frankly, you know, they, 
the the alienation of the lyrics or that that Karen Carpenter was singing I know she didn't write it was so sad you know when I look back you know I was a a young kid singing these songs like I say goodbye to love no one seems to care if I should live or die you think wow that that's quite a line isn't it you know heavy it is very heavy and you know rainy days and mondays again i just think well you know that is poetry so there was that and it's, there was it's like that song i don't like mondays you know, the- <laughs> <laughs> Dear old Bob, Bob yeah so there was there was an influence of of kind of that and years later i got really obsessed with Joni mitchell's blue and cord and spark and um yes. hissing of summer lawns you know and then oh Calvin, yes you know tapestry was another one of those ones that you played kind of constantly even the B side or second side. So yeah, there was that. And then I had an older brother who was seven years older and during the seventies, he sort of, we got a record player in the early seventies and, and he brought home, you know, he started getting into prog rock and then a bit of, you know, deep purple and black Sabbath. So I, I had a, a bit of an obsession with Genesis. Yes. Wishbone, Ash Barkley, James Harvest. So. Oh, I was a yes fanatic. There was a group of us uh, guitar players growing up as teenagers. And we just thought yes was the greatest. And, we went and saw him live a couple times, and and uh, I don't think I ever saw him with Bill Bruford, unfortunately, but uh, Alan White and and uh, yeah, Sabbath saw Sabbath a few times, and just you know a lot of the, a lot of the seventies rock that just was popular then, you know. Yes. Uh, you couldn't avoid it. Everybody in my age range was into that stuff, Led Zeppelin and everything, you know. So it sounds like you were always had you had a very musical house that you were always playing instruments. It was you weren't one of those people who the instrument came along when you were about sixteen or seventeen when you were at college or you know wanted to be in a band. You you'd already sort of got yourself well versed in music. Yeah, drums about started the drums about eight or so, and then uh, guitar about nine or ten. So that was you know something that I was really into and. I, did, I started off with just a snare drum and a cymbal, and then I got a bass drum and a hi-hat. So I was building, it was just good because I think if you get a full set right when you start, it can be overwhelming. And so I learned the real basics of basic rock beats with that minimal set. And then in sixth grade, I got my first uh, full drum set, a five-piece set. And that was about, I was ready for it then. Yes, absolutely. Does that mean that you didn't have any problem playing with the click track? Well, I didn't. I mean, I, I, one of the first, uh, one of the early bands, not first, but one of my early bands that I played in was called Cinema 90. And this is when the sequencing of synthesizers had just started. So every song, the, se- the, the synthesizer was se- sequenced in the, in the band. And so it was like playing with a metronome or a click track because there was no variance in, in the time of a synthesizer. And I did pretty good. I fell into the groove really good. So Yeah, nice one. And did John, I was and proud were, of myself for that. And were people like John Bonham or Mick Fleetwood or even people, you know, like Charlie Watts? And, and a bit later, there was Sly and Robbie. I mean, did, did they have a kind of influence on you? Well, I think... I think Keith Moon was the one who, who really influenced me the most. Right. Of his playing and, and his personality. Because <laughs> you know, a lot of drummers, they don't, they play the drums, but they're just playing the drums and they're great. 
but they don't have this amazing person over the top personality as they're playing the drums. No, that's he had something that he had two amazing things combined into one. So I just thought he was the greatest. Yes. <laughs> well, though Pete often says he, you know, he was a, he wasn't like technically the greatest drummer, but he obviously brought a lot to the band. I think right. he was just saying that, wasn't he? Just to sort of, you know, I don't know. But, but some people say that he's he does things that nobody else could do. So to me, that's pretty technical. Yes. Well, I know. I mean, I don't think, I think that's quite, you know, I think he's extraordinary. When I was growing up, seeing clips of, you know, Keith Moon was just extraordinary, wasn't it? And then, yeah. And there was an amazing film he was in, which was with David Essex called, I think that was, um, That Will Be The Day and Stardust, which was kind of made in the 70s, I think. And it had I've seen it. Ringo Starr was in it. And uh, yeah. it, it was just, a, I think it was one of the great films about being in a band ever. And it's kind of just, it's really difficult to get, you know, on Amazon or anywhere. And I still think everyone should be made to watch it who, who want to be into music, because it kind of says, this is kind of what's going to, could happen, well, probably will if you make it. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I, I was, my mother was a big movie buff. So I started a love of movies really early too. And that's one of my other things that I'm way into is the golden era of Hollywood, you know, uh, classic films, but also cult films, you know, films that, like you just mentioned that most people probably don't know about. I, I must have, I think I saw it on TV on what we have TCM, which is Turner Classic Movies. And they play a lot of obscure movies and it's great to see them on there. Yes, Harold and Mold, Mold. That's one of my favorite, Harold and Mold. It's got a great Harold soundtrack. Mod, with yes. With, with Cat Stevens, I mean, God, after that film, you just have to listen to Cat Stevens for weeks on end, don't you? Harold and Mold. It's just so weird. It was just such a strange, whoever sort of said, oh, I've got this great idea for a film. Someone went, yeah, we'll fund it. <laughs> so yeah, it, yeah, it's gonna be a, a, about a teenager who likes to kill himself and an old lady that lives in a train. I mean, that he falls in love with. And yes, yeah. I know the start of that was so shocking. It's like, what the hell? I thought someone told me it was a comedy. And it was like, this is a bit weird. But anyway, it was um, it's still a classic. So I, I still loved it. So then, because you're a little bit older than me, did punk rock kind of, did that sort of, was that a moment that you started seeing the Ramones and then obviously the Sex Pistols come along and the New York Dolls? Well, in high school, um, I, uh, you know, I think all the years of of stress and trouble and everything for me came to a head because my ninth grade year, what we call freshman year of high school, I had a complete psychotic break. So a complete nervous breakdown. And uh, while I was in, in the hospital recovering, some people came in and visited another patient in there and it turned out that they were students of Roosevelt the high school I went to as did Jim Bass Knight you know we went, both went to the same high school and that was a I don't know if he told you about that high school but it was there was a lot of characters and a lot of musicians and and so th these people that came in to visit this guy they were dressed in kind of glittery glammy clothes and you know, it really influenced me. Like I, I didn't really get it, but it, it intrigued me. And so it seemed like over the next year or two, I kept getting, getting reminded of this alternative sort of 
fashion statement and lifestyle that, that these young, these elder teenagers were, were doing. So, so what happened is um, by junior year, my 11th grade year, I had broken my leg skiing. And I spent, you know, some time just on the couch healing up this broken leg. Well, I happened to get a hold of, I must have gone down to the record store and was looking for something new. And I bought Ramon's Rocket to Russia because it had just, it had been out, not, not just come out. It actually been out for about six months or so. And I got Van Halen's first album, which had just come out. So I had these two records, Van Halen being on the side of rock that I was already really familiar with that 70s rock, you know, yes. and all that. But then the Ramones with this minimalistic approach, no leads, all rhythm guitar, nice compact pop songs. I swear, they I heard them for the first time and I thought they sounded familiar. Like, why do they sound familiar? Well, they reminded me of the Beach Boys kind of. It was right. just really catchy, happy, poppy stuff, and but really rocking. And I think that's what did it. My, my, my freshman year of high school, it all clicked. So 1978 is when I started getting into punk rock heavily. So from then on, I was, it changed my life. I mean, I, that's all I wanted to listen to. Not all, but that's yes. what I was into. And so there were so many records at that. By 78, there were so many 45s and imports and a lot of good American punk rock records. And so that's when I just, I got immersed myself in it. And I realized, see, I was trying to be like a bunch of my guitar player friends. We were all trying to be like Al Miola or John McLaughlin or, or Larry Coriel or <laughs> even um, Steve Howe. We wanted to be these techno, technical, tech, technically great guitar players. But I think that punk rock woke me up to, to, the, to, to the obviousness that you don't have to be the greatest guitar player technically to be in a great rock band. And I can, I can do this now. I, I don't have to practice six hours a day. I can just, I can practice an hour or two a day and then get a band together and pretty soon we can, you know, be a band and play. So that's when it, I, I had messed around a little bit in some rinky dink bands before that, but nothing serious. And yeah. so, so when I, I was, ready by my senior year of high school, uh, which would have been 78 to 79. That's when I started playing in bands. And uh, yes. so, so how long did you have, you know, I mean, you know, having that psychotic experience, I mean, that's kind of quite serious. I mean, I've got asthma, which frankly is serious, but on a different level. Um, but, you know, psychotic, you know, that's something that that's pretty heavy, isn't it? Yeah, it, it's, it's serious mental illness. I mean, I was hallucinating and I couldn't sleep. And they, so I, they, I got heavily sedated and I was in there with a lot of people that were way more messed up than me. Yeah. So it helped inspire me to get better. I wanted to get healthy and get better. So it was a total of two months. Uh, the first two weeks I, I lived there. And then the second two weeks, I just went there during the day and went home and stayed at my house at night, but that didn't work out. It was, it was just, I wasn't ready for that. So I went back into the, into the hospital for another two weeks. I lived there and then, then did the outpatient thing 
for two weeks where I just went home for a night. So after about two months, I was ready just to be at home and slowly get better and, and, you know, try to get back into school. And so it was tough. I, I missed a lot of school that year and had to make up classes and things like that. Yeah. But serious and it, and it cost a lot of money and there was money to pay for it because when my dad killed himself, there was some uh, insurance money. So my mom had that to, to help raise me. So she was able to pay for my hospital bill with some of that money. Blimey. That's quite, that's quite a story, isn't it? I mean, and did you, and have you sort of, did you sort of then find ways to sort of manage that and, and sort of continue to manage it? Yeah, I, I, well, you know, uh, I, I mean, I always smoked a lot of pot, not a lot, but I smoked pot. And by the time, I think by the time I had my breakdown, I was smoking it almost every day. So obviously I didn't smoke any for a while. And I think I sort of self-medicated myself with marijuana because uh, they didn't put me on any that I know of. I don't think they've had me on any uh, psychoactive drugs or not. Is that the right word? Um, anti I, I might have had some a little bit after I was in the hospital, but eventually I don't think I was on anything. Um, yeah, that's right. I, I was on some because it gave me acne. <laughs> yeah, but anyways, uh, yeah, it, it, was, was, it was a deal where slowly but surely, month after, week after week, month after month, I got better and stronger in my, you know, mental ability. <laughs> Yeah, Jesus, that's horrendous, isn't it? I mean, but thank God, thank God you kind of got the help. Then, you know, as the 80s progressed, you know, you, like there was the punk, there was the post-punk period. And, you know, obviously I'm more familiar with the UK scene, you know, because we, you know, in 79, Thatcher gets in, Mike, Margaret Thatcher. So there's a conservative government, you have Reagan. And then we, you know, in the, a lot of kids in the, the UK, um, you know, especially if you're kind of left of centre and working class, there was a huge amount of unemployment. So most, a lot of bands I've interviewed, you know, just signed on for several years. And during that time, you know, drunk a lot, smoked a lot formed a band you know and we had you know various gatekeepers we had this dj called john peel who who played a lot of alternative stuff on the bbc i know who he is yeah so he he was a huge person you know influence and then you know there was you know the the music papers like the melody maker nme sounds and sounds sounds which was you know so a lot you know kind of gave a lot of young kids an opportunity to sort of quickly progress to say crikey you know there's people all over the the UK knows us and possibly Europe and, you know, possibly the, U, you know, USA. So, so what was it like for you in, in sort of America during that sort of early eighties and sort of going through the eighties? Well, okay. So I'll start with the last of the seventies. So in 70, by 79, early 79, I was playing in my first professional band and um, the bass player from that band, she went on to a pretty well-known Seattle band called the Fastbacks. Oh yeah, I've heard of them, but the Fastbacks were one of these bands that a lot of bands knew about them. They never made it big, but they were always opening for big bands and things. So, but she and I played in this band called the Radios, and that was my first band. And you know, we covered, we did originals, but we covered like Jonathan Richmond's the song "Radio" on, 
Because <laughs> we were the radios, right? But so that's when it all started. It was really exciting. So I was playing drums in the radios and I was playing guitar, not in any band right at that point, but pretty soon after I started playing guitar in a band. Um, and we call it was it was called the Veins. It was V-A-I-N-S, like you're so vain. Right. And we put out a 45, and that was you know really cool to do. We were just kids. I was 18. I had there was a music uh, store in Seattle that had a deal where if you make a major purchase, they'll give you a thousand free singles plus free recording time in their studio. So I had some money left from the insurance policy from when my dad had killed himself. So when I turned 18, I got this insurance money. So I had some money in the bank and I, I was able to buy a PA for the, for the band, but also kill two birds with one stone by also getting this free recording time and, and free uh, singles. So we, we did this tape and it came out great. And we, we, we pressed it and um, wow, I mean, here it is 41 years later and it's finally being officially reissued this summer. So, and the bass player from that band and I grew up together from the veins and he, he turned out to be a huge rock star, um, Duff McKagan from Guns N' Roses. Oh, right. Jesus. Yes. That's Michael. So we, we, huh? Michael. Yeah, Michael McKagan, right. Wow. And we, um, we played together in about, I think about four bands before we both, you know, kind of went our own ways. And um, yeah, when he, he moved to LA, like three years before me, I guess it was. And uh, yeah, when I went to visit him in LA, he was just getting Guns N' Roses started. And uh, well, they weren't just started actually, they were doing pretty good locally, but they didn't have an album out. All they had was an EP, yeah. like a suicide or live like a suicide however you want to pronounce it. <laughs> and, um, and it was a live EP, although it's fake live. A lot of people don't know that, but it's not a real live EP. <laughs> but, but so I, I can get back to that later if you want, because that's a little bit late, farther along, you know. Yes, blimey. Uh, that, that, go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say, that was very impressive, the veins. Yeah, the veins, that single, we only did a thousand of them. And... You know, they've been, it's been bootlegged a bunch of times. It, there's a compilation series called Killed by Death. And it's all just punk rock singles that are hard to find, collectible, you know, really rare singles compiled. And they, they bootlegged all three different songs from the EP for three different volumes. So, yeah, it's a three-song 45, by the way. It's not just a two-songer. Yes. Um, there is even a book that uh can you see that yes i can that is very the album, yeah album cover art of punk yeah okay so oh there you go there's a yeah, there's the vein single the vein single which probably probably it how much does it fetch on ebay now a uh, couple hundred dollars i think but on that same page is social distortion. And so, so I was really pleased that, and then on the, on the big page is the damned. God so, damn. 
That is fantastic. So I was like really psyched when somebody told me that they thought that my book was, uh, my, my single was in this book. And um, I, got the, I got the book and I was like, wow, I'm on the same page as Social Distortion. And on the other pages, The Damned, I mean, two of my favorite bands, you know. <laughs> so, so that helped, I think, also make it more, more collectible. Well, God, absolutely. That's that's kind of where he started. So then, after the veins, what what was your next? Me, were you where were you based at this stage? This is all Seattle, right? So Seattle, um, you know. And then I, I I played a lot of rockabilly, so I was playing guitar in a rockabilly band called the Crocodiles, and then one called the Kitty Cats, and then I played drums in a band called the Four Bad Dudes. So I was playing a lot of rockabilly, and I was even playing some art rock. I was I was playing drums in this, um, you know, synthy-based rock band uh, called The Max, and we got a track on a Seattle compilation called The Seattle Syndrome, which came out in '81, and uh, Jim Bass Knight's also on that <laughs> compilation. I talk I talk about Jim because you know he's a good old friend of mine. Yes, we played in. You know, eventually I'll get to that, but we played in a band together too for the longest I ever played in a band was with was with Jim. God damn. That is that but is so, amazing. So, so uh, I also played in that synthy pop band I told you that had the sequenced songs. That was called Cinema 90. And uh yeah, I was I was in a band called The Little Bears from Bangkok that was kind of you know rock and funk, a little bit of funk, not that much, but uh, kind of maybe influenced by those Leeds bands like Gang of Four and uh, the Mekons. And there was Girls at Our Best as well, wasn't there? There was another band. They were quite obscure, actually. <laughs> well, who were they called? They were called Girls at Our Best. They only did one album, but my God. Oh, no, I never heard of them. So they were, they were from Leeds as well. I mean, Leeds had quite an interesting scene and they also had a bit of a goth scene going on because then Sisters of Mercy came out of there. And then they had the anarcho-punk scene with Chumbawamba as well. So there was a lot of squats in Leeds at the time. So, uh, yeah, so that's quite good. So you know that, that Delta 5 has a song in a major commercial right now. Yeah, God, what's the song? Is it... Um, it's um, Mind Your Own Business. That's Mind Your Own Business, yeah. There you go. Mind Your Own Business. <laughs> I, I heard it, you know, a few weeks ago. And I was like, I, I know this song. I've heard this song. But... I don't, I can't remember what it is from. And so I looked it up, the commercial up, and I found out it was Delta 5. And I thought, boy, they're lucky. They're getting a, a check in the mail right now. It's a legitimate commercial. And well, hopefully, getting, hopefully they own no, they, it. Said they, I, I read up on it and they've got a licensing deal. And they, they're getting paid. That Good is, for them, right? Yeah, absolutely. 40 years later. <laughs> I know, they must be really surprised going, wow. We never be probably most bands go. We never got any money, and then sort of to get something forty years later must be a bit of a yeah. It, something similar like that happened to me, but I'll get to that later too. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, God. So, so there you so, little little bears from Bangkok. Yeah, that's that was a really cool band. Um, was uh, with two girls, three guys, and uh, two basses, and. Uh, yeah, I was I was lucky. I, there was a really great scene in Seattle um, in the early to mid '80s. Yeah, and, well, but it did, and then it gets a bit more exciting. Well, not more exciting. Yeah, well, yeah. with the grunge thing is when it 
really got put on the map. But personally, that's that's kind of why I left. <laughs> I left Seattle a bit because of that. Not because not because I don't like the music, but because I don't know. I had things to do. I was going to college to become an actor as well. Oh, nice. Well, look, so that's what I wanted to do. Yes. But then during the 80s, after that, when did you start working? You've worked with Jane. Where, did you start working with? Yeah, Jane. Jane. Yes. Okay. So that a lot of stuff happened after I moved to LA. So what I'm just, I'm going to, I'm almost there. Okay. So I'm saying that during the early to mid 80s, you know, I was busy uh, getting a degree in acting and playing in all kinds of different bands. Um, the Kitty Cats, which was uh, my rockabilly band, I shared that with my girlfriend at the time. So we lived together. And her name was Kitty. Well, she went by Kitty. Her real name was Wendy. And so Wendy Lout and I uh, had this band. And, she, you know, things were, we, we knocked our head, banged our head against the wall for, for years trying to get that band going. And, you know, I could see that Seattle was just a place that nothing ever went to the next level. You know, you just couldn't seem to take it to the next level. And so that's when I decided that I would move to LA. But first I decided to take a, a month, you know, trip down there, make sure it was gonna be the right place for me to live. And in that month's time, uh, you know, I went and visited my, um, my cousin. I stayed with my cousin for a week and she lived in Pasadena. So I would take a bus into Hollywood and, and I looked up Duff and Duff's band Guns N' Roses was doing really good. Although they hadn't been, their big album hadn't come out, Appetite. I remember Duff one day uh, pressing the boom box, you know, the cassette player and you know, he's, he's going to play me some songs off their, their, the demo for their album. And he, he presses it and outblasts, um, you know, Welcome to the Jungle. And after hearing the song, I said, Duff, you know, that sounds pretty good. That's really good. I think you guys are going to do all right. You know, not knowing he was going to be in the biggest band of the late 80s, early 90s, you know, yes. the biggest world. But so, so Duff and I, were, were, we stayed friends while I was in L.A. for a while. Well, pretty much the whole time I was in L.A. So that was in 87. I moved to L.A. So I decided after that month. Oh, also, I met. That's when I met um, Levi Dexter. Oh, my God. Levi Dexter. We love him. I've done the interview oh, with really? Levi. And the Rock Cats with Smutty Smith. So that's interesting. See, I didn't know if you knew about some of my background or not. So this is great. I'm glad I keep surprising you. So Did you know the Havelinas with this guy called Tim? Yeah, I remember the Havelinas. Tim McConville, who, who wrote a song called High Hopes that Bruce Springsteen covers decades later. Right. The Havelinas, one of them that was in that band was Tim Scott, I think. And he was a rock cat. Yes, it's Tim. Right. Okay. I'm not going to find it. <laughs> so um, when I met Levi. Um, so did you know Lee Chill, Lee Black Chill? Yeah, yeah. Lee, Lee was, he was hanging around too. He was. He was living in LA then and and he was friends with Levi and I partied with him a little bit. He told me a great story about Billy Idol. Oh, excellent. What's the story? Uh, we love this. You stories. know, I never did tell you about I I totally skipped over my month in London in 1980 
Oh, okay. Then. Because 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 the Rockettes. I mean, it was kind of interesting because I did an interview with Smutty Smith, who said that he was in Essex and Lee Blackchilders saw him and went, "My God, I love the look. I'm taking you to New York." Oh, by the way, here's Robert Maplethorpe and here's Andy Warhol. We probably must get a band together, as if you know. And he had no musical background and they formed that band which was quite extraordinary and then lee dexter was there as well so um it's quite bonkers that story isn't it yeah no it's i mean like i i, yeah, I got one for you so I, I forgot to tell you though that after the veins after that band now these bands would only last a few months so the veins only played you know three or four shows and we did it's, can you hear me? Yeah. Yes, okay. it's just slightly broke up there. Perfect. Yeah, it broke up. And the Veins only did about three or four shows. And then we did a couple of reunion gigs after uh, after uh, Duff had moved to L.A. He came up to visit and we did some reunion shows. But but by the summer of 1980, I wasn't in the Veins but I was really well rehearsed. I've been playing a lot of guitar. And at that point, I, I think I really wanted to be a guitar player. So I went to London for a month. And who, what do you know? I had a life-changing experience there. No, I was really into the neo-mod scene. So all these bands that I've been listening to, buying the 45s and albums by Squire, Merton Parkas, The Purple Hearts, The Chords, Secret Affair, Okay, so, and then all this oi stuff that I was really into, too. I was really into Angelic Upstarts and the Cockney Rejects, Sham 69. Now, you know, these were bands that, you know, mods and skins weren't supposed to get along, but I didn't care because I liked the music on both sides. But, but, of course, I told you that the Ramones changed my life, but another band that I heard right around that time was Generation X. Right. And Generation X really, really influenced me and changed my my life too i just i so i love that band so i went to england and so we were staying about half mile from uh marquee club and i went i'd go to the marquee and i'd see bands like <laughs> i saw iron maiden with their first singer there i saw you know the merton parkas and the purple hearts there and i was just seeing all kinds of varieties of bands um but I, one day I saw a guy that looked like Billy Idol, and, and and a guy said to me, "Hey, there he is. That's that's I think that's Billy over there. I think it might have been my friend who I went with there." And he, and I said, "Really? I'm going to go over and talk to him." So I go over and talk to Billy Idol, and I go, "What's whatever happened to Generation X? We have the first two albums in America, but we've been wondering what's going on." He says, "Well, right now we're auditioning guitar players." And I, and I said, really? And my eyes lit up and I said, really, I'd love an audition. And I think, he, you know, I was a skinhead kid and like, cause I, I had a mohawk and I didn't like the way it looked. So I had my girlfriend at the time, she was there ahead of me. She was already there in London a couple of months before I went there. Her name was Trish, Trish Budnick. And she was my first love. And, you know, I was all in love with this girl. and. She was in England and it was just so fun to be there with her. Um, she, uh, but I don't know why I was telling you about her. But anyways, so so Billy, uh, Billy said, well, if you want an audition, you got to talk to that guy. And he points me to a, a guy with long hair 
And um, guy with long hair, and he's sort of in the corner. I can't really see who it is. And, and it turns out it's Tony James. And by this time, they had been growing their hair, hair out. Even Billy's idols, Billy's hair was longer than it used to be. And he, and so he kind of, he just thought I was maybe a, you know, a, a obnoxious kid or something. But he was, you know, he was polite. And he said, well, if you want an audition, you need to look in the enemy for our ad. And there'll be an ad in there. It won't say Generation X, but there'll be some keywords to, to be looking for, like influences, cramps, uh, David Bowie, Glare, Gary Glitter, um, you know, pistols, um, that kind of thing. And so the ad came out. I, I called up the ad, and it was their manager. So I had to talk to their manager. So I got like a little audition over the phone, you know, like what kind what, I played the right equipment. I had a Gibson guitar and I had a Fender basement amp. And so that was, I had tube amp and a cool guitar. And I told him the music I liked. And so I actually got an audition and I had to, I, I went and I met the manager first in person. And he gave me a couple of their 45s to learn. He says, you got to learn four songs for the audition. Ready, steady, go, wild youth and waiting for my man. Lou, you know, the Lou Reed yeah. and um, Gene Genie. So those are the four songs I had to, to learn. And so I learned those. Um, I borrowed a guitar from a, a punker kid that I met in England there, a kid about 15, and um, learned the songs and went to the audition. And they had this nice Marshall half stack and a nice left Paul there just for me to, to play on. And, and it was very successful. It was, they were very encouraging. I, I passed the audition. A point to the, to, I passed the audition. So then he said, okay, we're going to teach you a new song. So that meant that I passed. If, if I hadn't done well, then yeah, they wouldn't teach me. So he, now that, here's another instance of pressing the boom box and out blast dancing with myself. And it hadn't been released yet. So you know, they, and and um, by that time, Billy had his big ES, his big um, what was that guitar he had? It looked like an ES three thirty five, but it was a it was a, like a Vox or something. Anyways, big cool guitar. And, but before all this, he he lit up, he rolled up a hash tobacco joint, and we smoked the hash tobacco joint, and and got loose, you know. And then I played, I, he taught me the song and I played it. And then next thing I know, I'm playing the song with the band, you know, dancing with myself. And then I think they taught me one other one called Happy People. This, I'm one of the happy people. Anyways, it, it, both of the songs ended up on the third, the Gen X album. And the drummer when I auditioned was Terry Chimes. All right, Terry, yeah. yeah so, so that was, that was life-changing. That was an experience that, you know, to me, Billy Idol for me would have been ex exciting enough, but to actually go and play and audition, and they were encouraging. They said, you know, you're one of the first guys to come down today that, that has a feel for our stuff. He says, we've been getting these fat ZZ Top guys coming in here, and they don't know what we, we're about. He goes, when can you come down again? And I told him, I was honest, I said, well, my plane goes back to Seattle in like four or five days. And 
I don't know, for some reason, I, could, I couldn't change the flight. Like I would have lose, I would have lost my, my ticket and I would have had to come up with a other. And airfare was so expensive. It was like $600 one mm. way. And, and, and I, I had no guarantee that I was going to be in the band. But um, so I, I went back home and I, I think I really made a mistake because Billy came to Seattle. I think it was, might've been that year, that same 1980, like late 80 or early 81. And I went to the show and I was right up in front. And I had this little children's cowboy hat on and I threw it up at him and Billy put it on and wore it for a while while he was singing. And then he threw it back. And I thought, you know, I thought he recognized me. I wasn't sure. So after the show, I went around the side of the stage and he came out and, and he waits to the groupies. First thing he does, he comes up to me and he says, you, you, where did you go? I wanted you in my band. And, um, you know, Steve Stevens is looking at me like, what the hell? Who, who are you? Like what? And I mean, Steve Stevens was the right guy for Billy, obviously. He, they, they clicked and they, they were able to make these records that sold millions in, in America. Yeah. But have Billy even remember me after that audition was, was that made my night, that's for sure. Well, God, absolutely. <laughs> story about London. London, well, that- London was, it was so amazing. There was so much going on. I had so much fun. And yeah, I just... Wow. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that is quite wow. So then, God, that's um, that's quite a story. That then, so you did your acting degree or your acting course in the mid yeah, eighties. That's another reason why I wanted to move to, to LA was was to act as well. Yeah. So go ahead. Yes. So then, so then, as the eighties progressed, you 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 meet up with Jane County. Yeah. So so when I first moved to LA. Um, I met, uh, I met Levi. Oh, and, Levi. So you mentioned right. Tim Scott McConnell, Tim Scott and, and right. his, his full name. So he was in the Havelinas and he wrote the song High Hopes, which obviously didn't, you know, then Bruce Springsteen covers it and then puts it as his title for the album, which came out a few years ago. So obviously Tim did quite well with that, hopefully. Um, but yeah, so there was a whole sort of rockabilly scene, psycho rockabilly scene. Or right. Rock right. Scene. So well, did you did just, you meet did you meet Levi and Smutty Smith? Yeah, I only met Levi. By this time, this is 1988, or excuse me, sorry, 87. I moved the summer of 87 to, to LA. And um Levi was on his own at that time. He wasn't, there was no rock cats. Um, I think he left them from New York to, to LA. And uh and he had been married to a local girl, uh Named um, uh, um, God, I'm sp- spaced in her name. Um, oh, it's terrible. But he married a, he married an American girl, so he had, you know his. I don't know if he became an, a citizen, American citizen, or if he just was able then to get his green card to stay in 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 L A. But um, Pleasant, that's her name. Pleasant Gaiman. Pleasant Gaiman used to sing in an all girl band called the screaming sirens that were pretty big locally, but never really made it big, you know, nationally. Yeah. So Lee married her. I don't know how long the, the marriage lasted. I don't think it lasted that long. Um, Cause when he, when I met him in, um, in 87, he had a girlfriend named Shelly 
and Shelly used to be Jeff Beck's girlfriend. So, um, you know, they're all trading off girlfriends and stuff. No, no, no. <laughs> <clears throat> but Levi, I, mean, I can't remember how, I, I met Levi through this upright bass player. So when I was in, I, you know, I was in LA for that month just to make sure I wanted to move there. I was going out to shows and I was meeting people and I met this upright bass player who knew Levi and we were going to start a band with Levi. Um, but after I ended up moving, you know, to LA, it didn't really happen. So the Levi thing didn't really take off till later. Uh, but I did eventually play with Levi in, in LA. And then we toured Japan in 92, which was really great because we went, we went to, you know, because Levi is a rock star in Japan. So we went there and we got treated like kings, you know, signing autographs and getting <laughs> wine and dined. It was, it was great. But, but Levi and I, uh, we, we've lost touch over the years. Um, I keep meaning to try to, you know, Facebook him, you know, Facebook friend him. Is that, he lives in Portland now, as far as I know. No, Portland. I think he's back in Essex. Huh? I think... Levi, Levi, God, I'll make, make sure I've got the right person here. But the guy who was in the Rockettes was Levi. Yeah, the, Levi and the Rockettes. So he's in Essex now. He, he lives in Essex? I'm sure, because I interviewed him recently, and I'm sure he was like, oh, here's my mobile. I don't do anything else. I don't know how I got oh, into it. Then he must have moved, because he was living in Portland, Oregon. Um, yeah, Levi Dexter, he was... He's quite the rock star. I mean, is I, I, there's a video that he has. It's a compilation video of all these different like live shot live shows and and there's a couple. There's some songs on there from our shows in Japan. So I am playing drums with him in in that video. Um, I'm glad it was documented because we never did do any recording. Yes. Anyway, look, oh, let's not worry about, I think he's, anyway, look, so, so 87, I mean, obviously this is very American, you, you know, which, which I'm, because actually being from the UK, it's so small, isn't it? And it's kind of quite contained, whereas America, having done quite a lot of interviews with people in America, it's kind of every city has its own scene and it's, it's quite a different narrative. Because in the UK, you know, we had the sort of punk, post-punk. You had the mainstream charts and you had that Trevor Horn production and, you know, the Dire Straits and Band, you know, um, Spandau Ballet and Duran Duran, Sade. But then we had the alternative scene with like the Smiths and that whole indie world that happened from sort of 83 to 87. And then they broke up and then we had the, the kind of, the next generation got the ecstasy kind of kick and then everyone wanted to go raving. So a lot of those indie bands kind of folded. But in America, it's kind of, it's a much more different narrative, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, things just uh, keep going, you know? I mean, I don't know about, I really don't know much about what's going on now in music, you know, as far as on an independent level, on a local level, um, you know, especially the last year or so, everything's sort of shut off because of COVID. Yeah. But, um, but then, did you get your vaccine yet? I get my second. I get my second one on Monday, which I'm really believed about. Stop. Yeah. Yay! So I get my good second job. vaccine on Monday. So hopefully that will then, you know, it's quite good here at the moment. That's good. 
Yeah. Have you, so, have you, have you had your second vaccine? Yeah, I've had both. Yeah. There you go. It's got to be done, isn't it? But um, do you, I mean, do you want me to continue with what LA stuff? Because there's, there's a lot of stuff that happened. Yes, let's do LA. Let's do LA because okay. it's 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 it all part it's all part of the narrative. Yeah. Um, so one thing was good. Uh, Jim Bass Knight, he was living in LA at the time that I was there. So it was nice to have him, a local friend from Seattle that I'd known since I was a kid, um, living down in LA. And he helped me out, you know, with different things, and I'd go see his band play and I told him if he ever needed a drummer that I was available. But so, so 88 is uh, when I met, I think I met Jane in 88. Uh, Jane County was Levi's friend. So they were all friends with Lee Black Childers. And so I met Jane through Levi. And then Jane and I, you know, we really hit it off. And, you know, I, you know, we, we, uh, we messed around a little bit, you know, um, and I think that, she, you know, she wanted to take that further, the romance or whatever. And I just, I wasn't, I think I was more into just, you know, I was more into playing music with her. And so that we, we did that. We, um, we, we, were talk, we were talking about playing some music together. And um, so in the meantime, I went up and I, I, uh, I went to this club called the Palomino in North Hollywood. And it was this famous honky-tonk club where uh, all these famous uh, rock and roll and country and Western types had played and the pictures are all up on the wall and everything. And so I went to go see Sleepy LaBeef. Now, do you know who Sleepy LaBeef is? Nice, I've heard the name. So, so Sleepy, he's the last artist to be signed to Sun Records. So, so he came up at the same time as Elvis and everybody. He's an original rockabilly from the 50s. And so I met him, he must have been in his, um, I think he was in his 40s or early 50s when I met him. He, he died a couple years ago, a year and a half ago, I guess. And he was about 85 when he died. So, but I met him at the um, Palomino Club and it was similar to the Billy Idol thing because I came up to him between sets and I, I had my record to have him sign it. I said, Sleepy, I'm a big fan. You know, I brought my record. Can you, can you sign it? And he said, yeah. He's six foot six, 270 pounds. He's got this booming baritone. He's, yeah, son, I, I'll sign you my record. There you go. And, and I said, you know, I love rockabilly. I play it. I play, he goes, you do? What do you play? I said, I play drums and guitar. He goes, oh yeah, well, we might just be needing a drummer. And so he got me up that night to do a to audition. During the second set, he said, hey, we're gonna bring Chris up here tonight, have him play some drums. So I just like went up there and just started playing with him. And then he told me at the end of the set, he says, well, son, our drummer is 18 and he wants to go home. He's homesick. Would you like to finish the tour with us? And I said, I sure would. And so that I got myself together really fast and left a few days later to go on tour. And um, 
it was great. We toured across the country. It was about two months worth of touring. And then um, we had a gig at the Peppermint Lounge in, in New York, you know. And But the thing is, Sleepy, once we got over to his neck of the woods, he lived in, in Easton, which was a suburb of Boston. And he, wouldn't, he wanted me to, like, just stay at some motel and meet him at the gig. Like he didn't want to put me up or anything. And I was just, I was kind of a scared. I was in my twenties, but I still, I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know anywhere in the country, that part of the country. And so I just decided, hell, I had enough of Sleepy because he was great to be around, but he was also sometimes just awful to be around. But uh, he, he was amazing though. He had so many stories. It was estimated he knew six to 7,000 songs at the height of his memory in the 70s. So the guy was a walking encyclopedia of Americana, you know, blues, country and Western, honky tonk, swing, rock and roll, you name it, bluegrass. He knew all these songs. And, and when I played with him, I just played with him. I never knew what he was gonna play. There was never a set. It was just all just go for it, you know? And so he was, he was really a character, and I highly recommend checking out Sleepy LaBeef. Yes, God, I know. I just got a book on the Peppermint Lounge. Someone just, I can't remember. Oh, look, here it. Oh, this is it. No, it's not, is it? It's the Peppermint Twist. Sorry. Peppermint Twist. <laughs> Peppermint Lounge is a pretty well-known New York club, and I was supposed to play there with him and meet him there, and I decided just to, I decided to forget it. I'm going back to Seattle for a little while. So I went back to Seattle for a little while. And the thing about it is Jane was in New York at the time. Jane County went, went to the Peppermint. She went to the Peppermint Lounge expecting me, me to be playing drums with Sleepy. And there I, I, there I wasn't. You know, I didn't. <laughs> she was really, she was saying, Chris, what happened to you? I went to the Peppermint Lounge and you didn't even show up, you know, and and. So, but anyways, that's how I was able to get Jane then to come to Seattle and do a gig. We did a gig in, in Seattle uh, a few months later, and it was really, it was great. It was yes. And did, you, and did you ever record anything in the street? We recorded, yeah. We recorded um, two songs the day after the gig. We recorded two songs, uh, one of which ended up on... Uh, Betty Grable's Legs, an EP that she has. And I'm credited Chris Utting, my real name. Uh, U-T-T-I-N-G. That's right. Utting. You did Time Chris Machine. Krass. and uh, Right, Time Machine. Time Machine, yes. Let Your Backbone Slip. Yeah, that you know, the time Machine, she, um, she, was, she tried to give that to, uh, to Deborah Harry to do, she said. But I don't know what happened, why Deborah Harry didn't do it. Yes, blindy. God, you, you do move fast, don't you? You're just creating bands and then moving on very quickly here. This is quite, this is quite something. Most people don't, don't sort of have such a sort of quick narrative, really. So as the, as the late 80s, so was that the last bit of your, your experience with Jane County doing Time Machine? Yeah, yeah, we recorded. And, and then she went to... I think she might have gone to England. Yeah, she went to England. And so I kind of wondered what happened with, with everything, her and I didn't, we didn't keep in touch. I think because I didn't 
you know, become her lover. Uh, we didn't, you know, she was, she felt spurned. And so she wasn't as interested in keeping in touch with me. So uh, let's see, I was working at a record store in Hollywood and I got her number somehow, maybe from Levi. Some, somehow I got her phone number and I called her long distance at work from my work. And uh, later on, there was, a, there was a store meeting and the manager said, someone's been calling long distance and somebody called to, to England on our phone. I don't know who, so nobody's gonna be making any more long distance calls. And of course, I didn't say it was me, but, but anyway, so I called her and I said, Jane, you know, what happened? What's, what's been going on? And oh, that's right, before I called her, I found out from a friend who was in Japan that he said, he got back from Japan and he said, you know, I was in Japan and I, I got this Jane County record that you're on. And I said, really? I said, I don't, I don't, I haven't heard anything about that. And yeah, it goes to a song called Time Machine. And I said, man, that's the one. And so uh, that's why I tried to call her. And so I called her up and I said, Jane, what happened with the record and everything? And she says, oh, Chris, I was just waiting to get some royalties and I was going to, I was going to get a hold of you and la, la, la. And, and I said, okay, that's great. I hope so. And no, it never happened. I never talked to her again. And, <laughs> yeah. yeah that, that was sort of disappointing. And, and another thing that was disappointing was that, you know, I, I, once I moved to LA, I didn't play guitar anymore. I just was in demand as a drummer. So I played drums and rockabilly bands. I, I played in a jug band. I played uh, in like, you know, kind of power pop, power pop bands, uh, space rock bands. I played in all these different bands, but never guitar. So when I had the chance after doing my drum part for the, for the time machine, there was this guitar part that I, I kept hearing in my head. And I, I talked them into letting me do it on acoustic guitar. And I just, I couldn't nail it. And I was just kept trying. And they finally said, no, you can't do this anymore. I'm wasting time. I said, give me one more chance. I can do this. I know. So I did it one more time. I nailed the part. And so I was really proud of the part. And it added a lot to the song. And the funny thing is, somewhere in England, I suppose, Jane got this guitar player to overdub that part that I came up with only on electric guitar, she credited him with being in the studio with us like he was there at the session and, and didn't, didn't credit me with any guitar. And it was just like maddening. It was like, I, 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 that's my part. Why didn't I get credit? But you know, that's the story of my life, I think. I kind of go through my life feeling like, yeah, sometimes I don't get credit for stuff. And I, you know, I, I totally forgot to tell you about this other thing, but I mean, yeah, uh, what was the other thing? Well, the other thing I was going to tell you about was this band in, in Seattle um, after, after the Veins and after going to England in 81, I came up to Duff again and I said, Duff, let's start another band. And we started, I said, I got this idea for a band called The Living and The, the Living will be a positive band. Hardcore was starting to make uh, was starting to make punk rock way too negative and it was killing like kind of the old original great 70s sound of, of punk rock. I said, we'll call it the living and Duff, you and I can switch off drums and guitar. It'll be great. 
your songs you write, you play guitar, I play drums. The ones that I write and I'll play guitar and you play drums. So we started this band called The Living and it was, you know, pretty well received. I, I said, I want this to be a real band, a serious band. Because up until that point, a lot of bands just, they didn't get, nobody took them seriously. They broke up, they, various problems. I said, let's really do this right and make it sort of melodic and like, have really good songs. So we did, we started this band. We got a friend of ours to sing lead. And then we got this other friend of ours who'd never played bass, but he was just this Sid Vicious kind of guy. Kind of like Sid, Sid didn't play at first, but he was just a personality that, it, that was more important. That was, yeah, that was kind of our, our bass player was like that. And um, anyways, that band never recorded in the studio uh, while I was in the band. Um, we did a couple live shows where they, they taped it. So those two live shows may be coming out. Why? Because after I left the living, they stayed together. Duff's played exclusively guitar. They got a drummer named Greg Gilmore, who went on to become semi-famous in Mother Love Bone, which is one of the big Seattle grunge bands. And uh, right now, if you go to this group on Facebook, it's called The Living 1982. It's a big deal because they're called, they're, they're being called Seattle's greatest lost band and they've released their studio tape that they made. And so it's a big deal. I just, two days ago, I just did a, a podcast for that thing. And because um, they're interviewing various people that had to do with the Seattle Punk. So that, that, that was just something interesting. I want to tell you how that, that, along with the Vein single being reissued, now there's this thing from 40 years ago <laughs> where there's interest in this. You know, it's all my past. Nobody is interested in what I'm doing today. Well, we, 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 we haven't got there. So look. As well, a, maybe we'll get there. We'll yeah, we will. Look, so then the 90s, was there anything between Jane, your rockabilly, and then the next, the next kind of chapter? Jane, okay, so then, um, like, like I said, I played in a lot of different bands in, in Hollywood. Mm. Oh, you froze a bit. Oh my he, God. Uh, a drummer. He was still a drummer, but he wanted to do the, um, he wanted you, to do corporate life in, oh God, sorry. Okay. Could you could just go back a few seconds? Cause that just froze just when you went right. Okay. Yes. Sorry. So anyways, I met, I met these two girls, um, through this guy who was the manager at the record store. He had been in bands, but he decided he wanted to do the corporate route, the corporate thing, and he wasn't gonna play, you know, drums anymore, or, or at least take it, you know, full time. But he told me that some friends of his, uh, these two girls wanted to um, start a band. And he said, yeah, they used to be in a band that was pretty big around here called the Pandoras. And I don't know if you ever heard of the Pandoras, but they were all girl band, right? Okay, so garage band from the 80s, uh, psychedelic 60s garage type band. And they they left, it's funny, it's ironic. Part of the reason I, I left Seattle is because everybody was growing their hair long, which, and, and playing basically what I thought was like 70s rock. And then what do you know, that's what put Seattle on the map was this, 
long-haired grunge rock that was steeped in 70s influence. Well, the girls in the Pandoras, they left the Pandoras because the leader of the Pandoras wanted them also to grow their hair out and start playing hard rock music. And they they went with they they went along with that for a while. There was Kim and Melanie, Kim Shattuck and Melanie Bamman. They both uh, decided, no, we're not want to do the Pandoras anymore. It's not fun for us. We don't want to sound like ACDC. You know, we used to play these cool poppy, you know, 60s garage rock songs. We want to get back to that, you know. So that's what it was. I This, this drummer tells me that, you know, his friends want to start the, this band. So I go and I start playing with these, these two girls. And one of them's boyfriend, Kim Shattuck's boyfriend was the bass player. So we had this band. We came up with the name The Muffs. And that was the beginning of that. And that was that was the beginning of the most successful band that I'd ever been in because yeah. we we put out a single in 91 the, the first single and then we did a sub pop single in 92 and also I think in 91 we also did a Australian single on a go-go records and then um eventually we got signed to Warner Brothers and put our album out in 93 in, in, with Warner Brothers. Yes, so that must have felt quite a different experience to all the other bands in the sense of, of kind of suddenly this is what the classic narrative of a band does, isn't it? They form not normally from the ashes of another band. Well, they do sometimes, but, you know, you, you know, like you said, two members have been in the Pandoras, though they weren't the lead singer, though I suppose they were feeling a bit bruised with their experience with that band. But then, you know, putting, you know, getting the record label, you know, doing the singles and then putting an album out. Yeah, it was, they, you know, they had all the connections, which was good. So they had a lot of people supporting us, fans, as well as people in the industry. And I think that that was, it was the perfect, you know, combination of things to come together. And um, it was, uh, it, it came, it seemed like it came together pretty quick. And I think that's, that's when, you know, it's, it's meant to be. As we started playing shows, we were rehearsing. Each show, we got better. The band was, you know, it started off pretty rough. You know, we were, the, the three of them weren't the best musicians, I think, as far as on their instruments, they, they weren't as experienced as I was on the drums. So, I mean, I think it's good to have a, I think my theory, and this is coming from a guitar player too. I'm saying this as a guitar player. A band is only as good as a drummer. And I, I've heard that before. Because, um, you know, if you don't have a drummer that's holding it all together, really feeling the music, playing melodically as well as, as exuberantly, there's so many things a drummer has to, to do to make it, to make it right. And um, I think that, that that helped with me being as experienced as I was as a drummer for the band to, to snowball as fast as it did. Yeah. We were pretty rough to begin with, but it didn't take long for us to get pretty, pretty smooth. And, and it was a really raw band. It was a wild kind of fun punk rock band, but but it also you know we got pretty tight fast. You know? Yes, and and quite. I mean, it was kind of a perfect time as well musically because we'd had the sort of, you know, I mentioned earlier we you know we had the indie world and then we had the dance kind of groove that started, and then there was the Seattle thing, and then. 
like any music scenes, they do, after a couple of years, get a bit tired. And you, the Muffs sort of came in at that time before we had Britpop, and, you know, the, the sound was quite exciting, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, you know, I was so proud to be on Sub Pop, even though we just did the one single, because here I had come from Seattle, where I knew those two guys that started pump, uh, Sub Pop uh, Records. And I knew them when they were just doing like cassette compilations before they did even records and vinyl. And then Sub Pop was ground zero for the grunge experience. And so I was proud that I could come back triumphant from LA with a band that recorded for Sub Pop and did a single. And, and you know, we were, we got kind of swept up in all that. We yes. were kind of grungy in our way too. We weren't as heavy and as 70s influenced as some of the other grunge bands, but we were more on the pop side. But still, it was we were playing with grunge bands and it was fun, you know, it was a really fun time in my life. Yeah. I, did you and did you really, see the you know why the muffs, especially with Kim, had such a sort of kind of kind of vibe about them? I I think because she was um pretty unique you know there wasn't a lot of girl front women out there that were as uh, charismatic and as talented she could write songs she could play pretty good you know and um good player and good singer and um just just i mean if you didn't like courtney love chances are you would like kim because she was sort of like she was sort of like uh, Courtney Love with the talent. <laughs> you know, she didn't have her, her boyfriend write, write her album for her or anything like that. Yes. Though at the time, Ronnie, was it Ronnie, the bass player? He was in a yeah. relationship with her. Right. Yeah, when we first started, they were together. Yes. And just making of our, of our album, I think she started to mess around with the engineer. And so that was the beginning of the end with Kim and Ronnie. But it's good that they could stay friends and still play you know, all those years together. Yes, every, every band has a bit of Fleetwood Mac about them. So then, so after the album, you leave the, the band though. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't stay in the, the band that long. Um, we did a tour uh, with the Goo Goo Dolls and they hadn't really made it big like they became. So these, the tour that we did with them was, you know, fairly well received, but we played some places and there wouldn't be that many people there. But um, after the tour, we came back. And the thing is, is we, we accepted a lot of advance money for the tour, something like $35,000 or some crazy thing. So we were, you know, we were about, I don't know, half a million dollars or no, no maybe a quarter of a million dollars in debt to Warner Brothers. And we came back from the tour and they all wanted to go right back out on tour. And the thing about it is I didn't, Warner Brothers wasn't giving us any more money to live on. And so I, didn't, I came back broke, didn't have money to pay rent. I was living with my girlfriend who became my wife at the time. I met my wife in, in Hollywood, she was from Hollywood. She was, she had two kids at the time when I met her, they were five and seven. And I fell in love with the kids first. And then I fell in love with my wife. 
but uh you know here here it is you know all these years later we're still together we got married and the kids live a few blocks from us right now but anyways uh so here we come back from this tour i'm broke i'm thinking how am i going to pay rent um the band didn't care because they all had other sources of income like uh you know, Ronnie could get money from her parents. They all had parents that were helping them out at that time. And they didn't have to work. And I said, listen, I can't go right back out on tour. I need to get a job or something, make some money. And, and, I, and, I, and they wanted to go on this punk rock tour with the digits, like a low budget tour, which is what we should have done first. See, I think what we should have done is when the album came out, you do a small tour, not, not a big tour where you're getting advanced all this money. You see how the album does. And then if the album does well, your second tour, you go on a, to the next level. But we went right out on tour, on a big tour with a lot of money advanced, and it didn't it didn't pay off. And so now they, after coming back, now they want to go on a small time, lower budget tour with the digits, which we should have done the first time. And I said, I can't do it. And they said, okay, well, we're going to do it without you. And I said, I said, all right, because I, I talked to my wife. I said, earlier I had said to her, well, what do you think? Do you think we should move to Seattle and raise the kids up there? And that's what we did. I quit the muffs and moved, moved from LA with my wife and kids to Seattle and, and it immediately started playing with Jim in, in the Rockinghams. Right, bloody hell. So was that, did that feel a bit of a wrench with the muffs? Or at the time, did you think, well, that's just another one of the many bands you've been in? And what was the first part of the question? Did it feel like a wrench to leave a band that was kind of in that, you know, going kind of like a rocket taking off? Did it feel like, oh, shoot, this could have been, you know, I just wonder if it was a bit of an emotional moment to yeah. sort of say. Yeah, it was. it was. It was a big decision quitting and, you know, deciding to make a big move up to Seattle, which is a better place to raise the kids than Hollywood. And... um and they did really good up here. Um, but anyways, uh, yeah, so I, I, it was emotional. It was a big decision. But I was lucky because, like I said, right away I had somebody to play with that I, I knew for a long time, that I knew was a good songwriter, and that it was going to fit. And we clicked instantly, the, the Rockinghams did. And I brought that name up from L.A. with me, by the way. I got the name from Rockingham Street or Rockingham Boulevard or whatever from a street name in L in LA. And it turns out that that name got kind of famous because OJ Simpson that was part of the OJ Simpson trial where, where the Rockingham estates were where the, one of the places that he he lived or he murdered somebody or whatever. So <laughs> Jesus. But I, I just thought it was a good band. It reminded me of the Buckinghams or something like that. Yes, it's it's um, the Buckinghams. Was that Lindsay and Stevie, wasn't it? I don't think so. Oh, I, I'm thinking of... Um, I think they did a... So, that, oh they did an album together. Yeah, I can't remember what it was. I don't know what they called themselves. The, the Buckinghams did that song, Time Won't Let Me. Right. Time Won't Let Me. I know. Time Won't Let Me. <laughs> I have to have a look at the Buckinghams. I think it was Buckingham Knicks, actually, with the album, wasn't it? Right. Yeah, that's right. I have that record. 
classic. Steve, you look very beautiful. Um, yeah, so how did the, um, the, rocking, the rocking hands, you know, progress? Well, one that, album, Making Bacon, didn't you? Yeah, that was the first little, uh, well, we did this thing called The Monsters of Rock, and it was an EP. So it was five, I think, five songs. And, and we played around town, you know, we played around Seattle. It was really hard getting things moving, you know. It was frustrating because it was a really good band, you know. And man, I mean, it was definitely one of the best bands I've ever been in. Uh, really good musicians. Jim was a great guitar player, a really good singer, great songwriter. Jack, our bass player, was a really good bass player. So and I just clicked with those guys. I mean, we were, we started off as a four piece, but the other, the other guitar player didn't work out. I mean, he was, he had a bad attitude and it just didn't seem like he was fitting in. So we just became a trio, which was fine. We just, we did just, just fine without another guitar player. And anyways, uh, yeah, we played around. I think I was in that band for like four years. Yes. And then after the rocking hands, what, what's, what's, you know, I mean, taking it up to Vaguely the, the current day, what, what's, have you always stayed in bands or did you have periods where you were, um, yeah, yeah, just working? Did I break up? Shit. Don't you, break up. You, froze. You, you froze. Oh, I don't think it's. The, yeah. Yes. Oh, if, if frozen. Have I completely frozen? No, now you're you're back. Oh, thank God for that. Yeah. So, so then, what's what's the last twenty years been musically for you? Well, okay. So, trying to think more recently what I've done. Uh, right. Um, I played, uh, God, it's hard to remember it all, you know? It's funny that I can remember the older stuff better than the newer. Um, well, uh, I played in a, I, I, I finally got a job, a full-time job um, in the late 90s. Uh, it was at a place called Cosmo.com. And basically we were like Amazon, only instant gratification. Whatever we had on the website, which was, it started off just videos and video games. And it was at that transition from uh, VHS into uh, DVDs. Mm -hmm. So we, we rented DVDs and um, uh, videos and video games. Um, and it was in 98 and it was the first job I ever had that I felt like I could be um, a musician as well as have a full-time job because the um the hours worked out well i was a called a drop box specialist so i drove around and i emptied these boxes where people would return their videos in various neighborhoods where we had them placed around the city and uh it was you know and i did some delivery too i did and, and so the uh it got it got bigger and we got we got starbucks to allow us to become their partner. And that we were the first company that they ever partnered with. And, but the problem was we were supposed to pay them 
$150 million, $150 million over a course of a few years to pay them back all, because we were putting our, we were putting our drop boxes in their cafes. In, the, in this, so, so it was a really good deal, deal for them and wasn't such a good deal for us because we thought it would be great advertising. But eventually what happened is it was just too much too soon. We overextended ourselves and the business went, and the business it went out of business. So frustrating because it was so close to really doing something. And whatever you ordered within an hour, it was delivered to your house. Wow. So, it was instant gratification. And then we expanded into, you know, cigarettes and beer and wine and food, pizza and different things. So we really had this whole thing going and just wasn't able to sustain it. Couldn't pay the money back just to Starbucks and it went out of business. So that was a big disappointment. And during that time, I, I strained my back. I hurt my back. I had a herniated disc in my back probably like 2000, I guess. And it took, it took a long time. I stayed in bed for like two months <laughs> and it didn't get it surgery because I didn't want it. I wanted to heal on my own. So during that time I was playing in a band and they were called um, um, the Shiners. So the Shiners was a six piece, like a Western swing kind of honky tonk band. Yeah. Really, it was really a good band. We had uh, a girl lead singer and a guy on pedal steel, guy on bass and a guy on guitar and me on drums. And we, um, we did a little recording, but I hurt my back and they stood by me. It was like six months later after I was able to heal and practice and we did some gigs. And um, yeah, we got it all together. I, I said, we should really go for this. Let's get like three sets so we can start playing weddings and we can play nightclubs. We can play places where they need a full night's entertainment. We got our three sets down. And then the, the steel player who was older, he was older than us. He was having arthritis, arthritis problems and he quit antonitis problems in his ears. So he quit the band and it fell apart. So that was so much for that. And then, then I, I don't know, I was playing drums in some bands here and there. Eventually, I, uh, after taking, I think, 25 years off and not even playing my guitar at all or touching it, I picked up the guitar, I started playing it again, and I decided I wanted to play guitar. So, so I started playing guitar and put together a punk band. And started playing around town. And, um, but also I, I started playing drums in a really high energy, hardcore slash old school punk rock band. It was called the Piss Drunks. And the <laughs> were really amazing band. I mean, like one of the best bands you'd ever see. Like I saw them before I joined, they were great. When I joined, they were great. You know, I, I think I, Mate was an improvement on the old drummer, but the band was still just in your face, two guitars, lead singer, bass and drums. And the Piss Drunks did a, a really good recording uh, that nobody did anything with. It was so unorganized, it just kind of everybody, guys were on drugs and stuff. And, and that's something, you know, I really didn't want to talk about it too much, but yeah, about, about 
2008, I guess, I started started doing um, started doing a, a lot of cocaine, and um, eventually the coke. After you know a few years, I, you know, I was I don't know. I just wasn't feeling. I don't know why I got into it. I just did. I I got into it with a friend of mine, who <laughs> I ended up. Um, I ended up having an affair with this friend. He, he played with me in a band that I forgot to mention that's still going. Uh, we played in a rockabilly band back in the um, uh, early 90s, probably mid, mid 90s, called the Dusty 45s. And the Dusty 45s are a rockabilly band that have continued to, to go all this time. And he and I remained friends after I left the band, but we started you know, hanging out together and doing coke, and then we started messing around, <laughs> and because uh, because that was something that had, had that's something that had been in my, inside of me since I was in high school. I didn't really bring that up, but yeah, I guess you know I'm bisexual, big deal, and so I had had a lover in high school, and you know my my wife understood that about me, so she, she you know she's pretty open minded. She grew up in Hollywood, so. <laughs> You know, um, but uh, but yeah. So this friend of mine, um, we started doing and we had this affair. He ended up getting divorced from his wife, and we he ended up um, living here for a while with me and my wife, and then he he moved. To, but then we then we graduated into meth. Oh my! Yeah, we were doing a lot of meth and. Uh, and it really, I mean, I, I got into it a lot. And, and uh, yeah, so he moved to Eugene, Oregon, down there for a while, and then didn't work out for him down there, and he moved back. So he lives here with us still. We're, we're no longer doing drugs. We're no longer lovers. But um, that, that, that took up some of my time, and, you know, I wasn't as motivated to do music, although I was doing music, and I was – you know, playing with people. Yeah. How I didn't, how they didn't know I was on meth, or if they suspected they didn't want to kick kick me out, or I don't know, but managed to maintain. And um, eventually, quit quit. Well, the the guy we were getting the meth from died. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you know, I think we thought that that was a good time to. That was a good sign. <laughs> that was a good sign. A good time to quit, and we did. Yes. And unfortunately, um, after that, I went through severe depression and severe to the point where, you know, I was like suicidal and everything and um, ended up getting shock treatment. I got a lot of uh, a lot of electroshock treatment and it helped a little bit. It helped a lot. And then I did some non-invasive shock treatment, which is a lot, it's just it's this little electric thing that taps on your temple mm. and they do it for like 15 minutes. You do it every day. And, and that helps some more too. But that got me out. So, but, but basically I've, I've been in a pretty bad rut the last few years, as far as trying to get motivated, trying to, the last few years I've been playing in a, a, a band called Organism. And Organism is with this organist 
he plays organ, I play drums. We're just a duo, instrumental duo. And we have a couple sets worth of material and we were just playing around Seattle, various gigs. And we haven't been doing much at all because of COVID. We mm-hmm. just started practicing again. But, um, but, but I did do, when I started playing guitar in my punk band, I, I, I made a CD that I'm very proud of, that I think holds up, that holds up to any good punk rock record. And uh, I don't know where they are. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, 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 they're they're somewhere around the house. I'm a I'm a bad collector of things. And yes. So I, so I mean, God, your your life has been Jesus has been quite full, hasn't it? It's right up to the very current day. I mean, how do you sort of keep everything together, like a home, and you know, I don't know, just keeping keeping the you know keeping oneself you know a, a, well the basics in life, you know, like just a home food, yeah. you know, paying bills. Well, one of the things is when I, I got declared uh, by a psychiatrist uh, before, this was before the depression, uh, he, he figured that I was bipolar. And my dad must have been bipolar too. You know, that's why he killed himself. And so he was able to get um, social security to agree to the disability. So I get a small check, less than a thousand dollars a month, um, and that, you know, that takes care of a lot. Like my medicine that I kind of take because I gotta take, I gotta take pills for my me- for my mental problems. <laughs> um, so I'm not working, and I, if I, you know, I should work, but I just haven't been motivated. Uh, my wife is a tax preparer. And she's really good. She's an enrolled agent. And so she does taxes year round for, for H&R Block, which is a you know, big uh, corporation in America. And she also does her own independent work for other people, other clients. Yeah. And, and um, well, they, you know, we, uh, we get by somehow, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah, we had to put my one of my dogs. We had to put her down about three weeks ago, and she's my best dog. I love dogs. They've they've helped me a lot over the years since I was well ever since I was born. Dogs played a real important role in my life. Mm. And uh, uh, yeah, we put her down, so that was hard. Um, anyways, we have another dog. We have two dogs. So luckily I have the other dog to keep, keep, keep me happy. And I get out every week. I mean, every day I take the dog out for a walk. So, and the friend that, that I play in the, um, in the organism with mm-hmm. is Harris Lemberg. And Harris is older than me. He's, when I, I, when I met him at first, he had an ad in, in the, with Craigslist was, you know, ad for musicians, and and it said, organist wants to do a combo. We'll pay twenty five dollars for rehearsal, per rehearsal, fifty dollars per gig. So I was like, I'll check this out. You know, make a little extra money. And I called him up, and <laughs> he comes over. You know, I find out the guy's like eleven years older than me. So he's like, he's going to be seventy two on on Sunday. <laughs> I never thought I'd be playing in, in a band with somebody that old. I mean, 
it's weird how age just creeps up on you and all of a sudden I'm, I'm 60 and I'm playing in a band with a guy that's in his 70s. That's crazy. But um, it turned out he never did pay me any of that money. I never did get $50 a gig or it didn't matter. He just became a friend. And so we're, we're really good friends. And he comes over almost every day with his dog. And we always go for a walk in the park. We have a bunch of parks right near my house. But um, so, you know, I'm not doing enough. I know that I'm in a rut and I need to do more just, you know, around the house, around my life, <laughs> everything. Yeah, it's I, I'm not like Jim Bassman. I always has something going. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, but it's been a tough, you know, it has been a tough time as well. I mean, yeah, we all felt, you know, I think in, in, in the UK, I think this winter just has made everyone a bit sort of down about things. But, you know, hopefully things might change again. Hopefully this 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 now interview won't freeze, which people, would be annoying. People are coming back. People are coming back. So just kind of vaguely on the last the last bit. I mean, I always ask this. I mean, if you could have said something to like your sixteen or eighteen year old self who was starting out, and you think, you know, you could have just kind of whispered something in their ear or some sort of kind of key, you know, a bullet a few bullet points. You said, yeah, I would have just really told them this would have been a good thing, or that would have been a bad thing to have done, or watch out for that. I just wondered if there was anything that you would have just said, yeah. Because you've got a lot of you've got a lot of experience here. Okay, okay, so you were during that you were breaking up pretty bad. Yes. <laughs> so is it is it what would I tell somebody who's well say say if someone could have you know with your experience and what you've been through if you could have said something to your sixteen year old self just starting out or and it could be any kid but say it's you and you could just say oh look I'll just give you a quick whisper a couple of keep it in I just well, wonder what you yeah I, I think that one of the things I'd tell myself was not to be so competitive and sort of jealous and um always feeling like I had to approve myself um I think that I was you know I have this insecurity like I'm not getting enough credit that I'm not, people aren't noticing me enough. And it, and it's, and it has it has been that way. I mean, I, you know, I look at the Muffs and a lot of people don't even know about that first Muffs album. And, you know, that, that we were the ones, you know, that started off that re record. I guess, you know, I, I, my attitude, I think I could have had a better attitude, a more positive attitude. And, and, not be so quick to, to judge and to, to change directions. And, you know, I feel like maybe if I had stuck with things longer, but I don't know. Every, but then again, I think that things, yeah, I left things, but a lot of times I left things because I could see that it wasn't going in the direction that I wanted it to go. So instead of just sticking with it and being unhappy, I was able to move on and at least go into something new and different. Mm. So I, I don't know. It's, it's hard to say. I think that smoking pot, you know, all the pot I smoked, I think I would say that wasn't so good because I think it's a real uh, demotivator. So I think, I think, you know, that's, I smoke pot every day and I have pretty much, you know, for 45 years. And I, sometimes I think that 
And if I hadn't smoked pot, that maybe I would have gone farther in my career. The acting thing, I never achieved what I wanted to achieve in acting. I mean, I really wanted to be, I wanted to be a rock star, but I also wanted to be a successful actor. And I'll just admit that a lot of people think it's not cool to admit that you want to be a rock star. But I think that most people are lying to themselves when they say that. Oh, I just wanted to be a musician. No, I mean, you want, you want success. It's, there's nothing wrong with that. And with success comes stardom. So whether you want it or not, you're a rock star. And it's, it just seems that people have such bad, they, people, it has a bad connotation. Oh, he's such a rock star. But, you know. Yeah. Oh, but, here's, I, gotta, I gotta take this phone call real quick. Okay. Eric, I'm still not done, so let me call you back, okay? Everybody. Yes. So, uh, on, yeah, so, so, I mean, obviously, but then, you know, Duff, you know, you couldn't have got a bigger, did you, you know, couldn't get a bigger rock star in a way. Um, did, you, did you reconnect with him occasionally and say, bloody hell, how did it well, go? When, when, when I was in LA, we were friends and occasionally we'd get together and, uh, but it seemed like the bigger he got, the harder it was to connect and we lost touch with each other. And I wish, I wish we hadn't because it's been a, it's tough sometimes because we grew up together, you know, and to see somebody make it that big, it's, you know, he, he made a really great record. That Appetite for Destruction is a great record and he deserved to become a rock star with, with that album. Um, but I mean, the, the Muffs made a, their first album was really good. The one I'm on, I'm sorry, I don't care what anybody says. It's not just because I'm on it. If it sounded the way it sounds compared to the uh, other albums, it's the best Muffs album. So I, I feel like, God, if I could have just stuck with it, maybe maybe we would have gotten bigger. Maybe would have, you know, it, it's been really tough, to tell you the truth, seeing Duff over the years and, and you know, see him on TV and, and it feel like, we have a show in, in America called Get Smart, and, and, it, and the, the guy is a, a spy, and he always messes things up, and he always misses things, and he goes, missed it by that much. That's, that's his thing. I missed it by that much. And I kind of feel like that with, with, with my career, that I just, you know, I mean, I, I probably should have tried to stay on in London longer to maybe play guitar in Generation X, or maybe I should have kept playing with Jane and not, or maybe I should have kept playing with Sleepy. You know, these are people that I could have continued working with, but I didn't. I don't know. I don't know why. <laughs> it just didn't feel right anymore. It didn't feel right. You've got to occasionally just, I don't know if it's one hell of a, I mean, you know, it's one hell of a story though, Jesus. I mean, it's that you have packed, you have to give yourself credit that you've packed yourself, uh, packed a lot into your life and you are still with us and you're still here. So there's still more to play for. Yeah. I mean, I, I do want, would like to, you know, get something else. You know, I, I just, sometimes I just feel lost at, at this age at 60. I, I don't, you know, I don't know where music's at these days. Um, I, you know, I used to be a, I just, it's the depression. I mean, I've got thousands of records 
and thousands of CDs. I mean, you know, buying records and not just buying, collecting, just I'm, I'm, but I don't even hardly listen to music anymore. If that was one of my big passions was collecting the music and listening to it. So I think that I need to, uh, I really need to get off my ass and reinvent myself because I'm not motivated. I'm not motivated really to do anything right now. It's, it's yeah. bad. <laughs> it's, no, but, it's a weird yeah. age to be. I, I feel like there's no use for me anymore. <laughs> oh, God. Don't say that. It'll be fine. I mean, you know, we're going to come out of this. There's going to be an amazing amount of enthusiasm for the future, hopefully. So, um, and, you know, you never know. It could just, it's the best years could still be happening. So I think have faith. That's what I think. <laughs> it's true. It's true. But anyway, I mean, if nothing else, I mean, you know, you should archive your career in, and, and your life story because it's still an amazing story. Yeah, I mean, it's, I, I think my life, story might be worth telling because it's a lot more than just rock and roll and it's it's all this other stuff having to do with people's sexuality and people's you know mental health and it's about you know family a lot of yeah. other things it is i think you know yeah you should you should sort of just do a rough you know a rough draft of your book and then see what happens i think it'd be amazing it's been nice to talking to you about it you know, um, sometimes I feel like I'm just rambling on. But <laughs> No, no, it's been fantastic. Well, look, I'll let you go because frankly, yeah, it's been a while. But look, thank you ever so much. And I'll keep in touch and I can send you the link and then you can listen to it. I mean, it is freeze occasionally, but it's not too bad. So let's not worry about that. But in this day and age with a global pandemic, that's the least of our problems. But anyway, look, thank you again. And um, look, take, take care it. of yourself. And um, yes, keep in touch. Thanks, David. See All right, I appreciate it. See you later. It's been fun. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. And that, dear listener, is how you end a good conversation. I love leaving those last bits in because um, it just highlights how fumbly I can be. And English. Anyway, that's true. So a massive, massive thank you to Chris for giving me the time for that interview. Chris Utting, Chris Crass, on the, um, the world of music, rock and roll. There you go. Should come with a health warning. Anyway, look, this is, if you want to know any more information about Chris, you can look on Facebook, I do believe. And um, yes, you'll find it there. And also discography is another good place. But uh, if you want to contact me for some exciting reason, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. It's the C86 show. Keep it positive and nice. Otherwise, don't bother. And also, all these interviews have been archived on Facebook, no, it's not. On um, Spotify, iTunes and Podbean. It's true. Anyway, look, I'm going to bed, so have a great night. Stay safe. <laughs>